This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Jens Nielsen. Jens is a syndicator with Open Doors Capital. In this episode, Jens will tell us how he went from owning four units to owning over a thousand units in four years. He'll be telling us how he got into multifamily syndications and how passive investments are the way to build generational wealth. If you're new to this podcast, welcome to the show. If you thought it was informative and engaging, consider subscribing to the podcast. We release episodes every Wednesday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Conventus Lending. Conventus is a hard money lending company based in the Bay Area and has funded over $2 billion over the past few years. We offer competitive rates and amazing service. And for being an Everything Real Estate Investing Show listener, you'll get a discount on your processing fee. So whether you're looking for a bridge loan for your next fix and flip project, or if you're looking for a 30-year fixed loan on an investment property, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get the process started. All right, Jens, thank you so much for being on our show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Hey, thanks, John. I appreciate it. Yeah, so my name is Jens Nielsen, originally from Denmark, but I've been in the U.S. since 1996, so quite a few years. I'm a, um, a multifamily investor and also coach. So we uh, syndicate apartment buildings throughout the country. Uh, we think we're getting close to 800 units that we've syndicated in the last couple of years now in a few different states around the country. And then my passion is also coaching new investors that want to get into the field. Do you want to tell us how you got started with investing in real estate? Yeah, it was really a, you know, I have been in the IT field for many years. And like five years ago, I decided that if I didn't want to just spend the rest of my life working for somebody else, I had to make a change. And the change was really, you know, I was looking at well, what are the opportunities I have, right? And I felt like real estate was the one way to generate, you know, generational wealth and just invest in a hard asset. So that was the, the mindset shift there. And I then uh, reached out to some people that I knew were already in the business. And I said, how do I get started in this, right? What are the steps I need to take? And they kind of directed me on the right path. And I just said, well, you got to, you know, reach out to some brokers and just kind of get started. So I started with a couple of uh, fourplexes in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And it was actually just four years ago in July that I bought my first couple of properties, you know, so it hasn't been that long, but it's been a lot of growth and progress since then. That's awesome. I think around four years ago, I started my real estate investing journey as well. And very similar to you, I used to be an engineer and I was kind of thinking like, all right, I don't really want to be here for 30 plus years and end up like my coworkers. What can I do to you know change this paradigm? And I just started going to meetup groups, just like you said, talk to some people, but it took me a whole year before I actually made my first acquisition. Uh, what was the whole process like for you? I was probably the guy you were looking at since I'm in my late 40s now. I was like, I don't want to end up like him. Yeah, so the process for me, so I can't, I lived in a very small town, literally like southwestern Colorado with 20,000 people. So there wasn't a lot of resources in that, you know, in terms of meetup. There was one little meetup that I attended. But I reached out to a friend who I knew was doing this. And I just kind of sat down with him and said, how do we actually invest in real estate? And he kind of explained it to me. And he made, I asked him a very powerful question. It is, who do you know that I should know? So he connected me with a broker 
you know, when you ask that question, they were like, people start thinking. So he connected me with a broker in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I had some money and I said, hey, Mr. Broker, I want to buy a fourplex. How do I do this? And he's like, oh, you know, let's look at some deals. And very quickly he found a, a fourplex that we could buy. And I felt like, you know, what can possibly go wrong? Right? <laughs> so that's kind of how I got started. And then can you tell us some of the details of the fourplex and why you thought these were good deals? It was a four unit. I think we paid $117,000 for it. So that may sound cheap, you know, put some money in, put a new roof on there, did some stucco work and some other things. And, you know, the rents for five, $600 per unit, you know, so got traditional 30 year financing on it. So, you know, cash flow pretty well. It was an older property, so it needed a little bit of work here and there. But in, in the end, it, it, it worked out okay. Nice. And what did you do after that? So that was the first deal. Then a few months later, we bought another four unit, a fourplex kind of in the same area. And I think we paid like 145, 150 for that, you know, but then I was like, man, fourplexes, I got to keep buying a lot of small units in order to get anywhere. So we quickly decided that we want to scale. So we found an 11 unit deal like six months later that we ended up buying. So we had 19 units within like a six, seven months uh, period. That's crazy. And did you just save all that down payment from all those years of working in IT? Pretty much. Nice. I mean, I, you know, just money in the stock market, right? I had been putting money in the stock market for a long time and had ridden the ups and downs, but still made some good gains on it. And I just called my broker and said, hey, I want out. And he's like, no, 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 no. Well, I convinced him and I have not looked back since then. Nice. And then to finance the first two fourplexes, did you just use conventional financing? Yeah, that was just, you know, a 30-year mortgage through the bank, right? And, you know, I think back then it was 5% interest. And, you know, so that was it's easy to do those smaller deals, right? Because you just get, get a loan on them. So that worked out great. And then how did it work for your 11 unit? So that was interesting because that was actually a seller finance deal. It was listed as such. And the reason why the seller wanted to do that, because the property was not in very good shape and they probably realized you couldn't go out and get a bank loan on it. You know, once you get above four units, you have to get commercial lending and, and that's just adds a whole level of complexity. So they want to carry the note on there and they gave us a, you know, that's like a $50,000 down payment on it. And then they allowed us to, we didn't make any payments on it for like a year while we were putting that money back into fixing up the units. Cause it needed like a hundred thousand dollars worth of CapEx. Right. And uh, so we did that. And I just, like a month ago, refinanced that deal, pulled all my equity out, got a 3.5% interest loan on there, and actually have even more cash flow on it now. So that's pretty awesome. That's crazy. So your initial seller financing was probably at a higher interest rate, and now you refinanced it at a lower rate. Lower rate and even a longer amortization, right? And, and was able to cash out, you know, a 90, 100 grand or something. So that was, that was pretty cool. So you live in Colorado right now, right? And this deal is in Albuquerque? Well, I, I just actually relocated to Santa Fe, New Mexico. So I'm just about an hour away from my properties now. But yeah, I was in Colorado up until like a week ago. So oh, Okay. Congratulations on the move. Thank you. And you refinanced before you moved there. Is that right? Yeah. That took a long time because they, you know, we started a process like late last year and then the whole COVID thing happened. And I was like, well, let's just see how things go. I don't want to, you know, try to get a loan in the middle of all that. But our collections were great. So we decided to proceed and actually it helped with the because the rates dropped so much right so it helped with the the, the the interest rate on the loan you know i tried to get a commercial loan for a smaller unit 
a couple of years ago, and it was actually really, really hard to do so. Do you have any tips on how to navigate that whole commercial space, especially if you don't live in the same state as a subject property? You know, some banks really want to know who they're dealing with because there's a typically, you know, portfolio loans that the bank are lending. So, you know, if, if you don't live there, I mean, I can explain what happened to me. I had actually gotten introduced to this, this loan officer through a deal I did with somebody else that lives there who had a credibility. So I was already signed on a lot of another loan, right? So I gained credibility through my partner. If you're just getting started, you know, call different banks and see who are willing to lend, right? Because some may be much more conservative than others, but there's, there are really banks out there that are still pretty aggressive these days on lending. You just got to call around, find the right one and show, you know, show good financials, show that you have, well, if you refinance one thing, if you're buying a new property, you know, make sure that you've done good underwriting, that you can talk intelligently about that deal and that it, that it's going to make sense for them to finance it. Yeah, that makes sense. So then after you had 19 units, how long did you stay at your IT job before you decided to go into real estate full-time? Well, it took a while. So actually just right now, uh, since part of this relocation, I have partly retired, if you will. So I'm I'm down to like a part-time job for my W-2 right now. So, you know, four years, you know, and I know some people do it much quicker. I was trying to do it while working and, you know, but it, feel, it felt like it was a comfortable path. I mean, I didn't have to, you know, take too much risk and everything, so... Yeah. What were some of the challenges of trying to do both at the same time? Just being very good at managing your time, right? Because getting up in the morning and going to work, but then trying to figure out when do I squeeze in the broker calls and the bank calls to the lenders and underwrite properties, right? So just really that balance, right? So that would be some early morning, late evenings, uh, working on this stuff, you know, a few calls here and there doing work hours and just, you know, don't go home and watch TV and drink beer because that's not going to get you where you want to go, right? Just to be really, really, and then plan out your day, right? I mean, I get up early in the morning and I decide what I want to accomplish that day. And that, that becomes part of my daily routine. So it's not just random what happened, right? Yeah, exactly. You have to actually work towards your goals. You can't just hang out and chill and expect all these good things to happen to you, right? That's right. They won't just happen by accident, right? Yeah. And did you ever have any like reservations of if your management team found out that you were doing this side business you know what I mean? Like when I was working full time, I did feel that pressure. I was like, man, what if they find out that I'm doing real estate on the side? Are they going to say something to me? I know. I have some friends and partners who have like been super quiet about it. I was like, I did not hide anything because my boss was, you know, I started talking about it and he's like, oh yeah, I really want to get into it as well. But, you know, he's now the CIO of the company and he didn't have time. So I said, well, I'm starting to syndicate the deals now. Do you want to partner with me? So he's invested, I think it's in three of my deals. And so I did not keep it quiet. You know, I mean, I don't think HR ever heard about it, but at least my manager did. So he was, he was cool with it. So it actually worked out. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I guess as long as you're not like actively doing things on work time and you're getting your tasks done, then it should be okay to, to still have your own business on the side. It should be, yeah, but I'm sure HR would not have liked it, but what they don't know can't hurt them, right? Exactly. Cool. So after those 19 units, when did you start getting into the syndication model? The first like kind of deal that we got, like more people involved, uh, we did a JV on a 38 unit we bought, you know, a little two and a half years ago. That was the first time we bought some more people into it, you know, so I had a couple of friends that wanted to JV on it. So that was the first time we kind of got quote unquote investors in there. But the syndication really started like... 
18 months ago, beginning of uh, 2019. And, you know, people's like, well, how, how did you start syndicating? Well, the way I did that was I got involved in, you know, kind of a coaching mentorship group and people they were doing deals. So I found a way to add value to them, right? Kind of go and co-sponsor some of these deals through due diligence and equity and asset management. So kind of just connect myself as an established team because going out and doing it by yourself is pretty much impossible. So just find that, find somebody you can add some value to. And then now then that's kind of growing that it's now my team versus me joining somebody else's team and so forth. Who were the team members that you ended up joining with? So basically were people that I was part of this kind of coaching mentorship group and people were doing deals there. And I actually said, hey, let's, uh, you know, we'll go to some events and I would connect with them. But I said, hey, I live in a small town. I want to connect with you guys. Why don't I set up a monthly mastermind call? We can get on a call together and then, you know, we can kind of learn and collaborate. So I was able to bring some people together that everybody thought they got value from. And then I was able to show that I could actually help them close these deals. So they had just done some, they had done a couple of deals and they just needed, you know, to grow their business a little bit. And I was able to help them that way. So I guess that's the probably key piece of it is you need to add value somehow to a team. Um, I guess in your case, it was by bringing everyone together and then saying, hey, I would do some of this work for you and potentially raise some capital on the equity side for your deals. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think as, as investors start out, they have a tendency, oh, I want to do everything myself and, you know, I can figure this out. And maybe you can, but it's going to take you much longer to get anywhere. So I felt like once I got outside and changed that mindset, then I was like, hey, I can now partner with people. I can bring value that way. And that's how I'm going to you know, accelerate my growth and my progress for sure. Yeah, I totally understand what you're saying because even I have like the same mindset. I do like to do things kind of on my own. But when you do it that way, you can only learn so much per deal. Otherwise, you risk losing a lot, right? You risk screwing up a lot of things. Or some things just aren't even possible when you're by yourself. Like if you have no multifamily experience, it's going to be very unlikely that you're going to get a, a loan that kind of property so you need to have someone who has experience and can guide you all the way through absolutely yeah 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 and it is a team sport right i mean if you're buying a 10 or 20 million dollar deal right, you gotta have the net worth equal to the loan amount you gotta have experience you gotta have you know the liquidity and all those things and you know one person it's gonna be very difficult to have all those things but you know three, three or four of you it can definitely be done right and so since then it seems like you've done a lot of syndications and you guys own a lot of different apartment complexes do you want to talk a little bit about the portfolio that you've acquired in the past couple of years? Yeah. So the first deal we did was in Atlanta, Georgia. It was 205 unit, uh, kind of class C plus B minus. We bought in, I think it was March of 2019. And you know, typical value add deal, right? We're going there, we have the units, raise rents, and, and just kind of improve the operations of that deal. And um, that's going well. I mean, of course, COVID has put a rent in a lot of things, but it's going okay. Then the next deal was actually... In Phoenix, Arizona, it was 212 unit. And that was a little bit of a rougher property, kind of in a you know, path of progress, but you know, a pretty tough tenant class. So we've been working on kind of turning the units and improving the tenant class. And it's going well there too. Again, you know, we didn't want to be in the middle of this when COVID hit, but we just stopped renovating for a bit, see how things are going. And as collections were going okay, we then restarted collections, we're actually able to still raise rents on new leases and everything. So that's going okay. And then the last two deals we have done are both in Erie, Pennsylvania, of kind of all places. And people are like, 
why up there? Well, it's a very strong cash flow market and you can still go and buy properties, you know, seven cap or something. And, you know, obviously the appreciation is a little bit slower, but we like that market. And I have a partner who lives there and has been growing his portfolio over the last like 20 years. So having those boots on the ground are great. So that's a 205 unit and 137 unit deal that's done up there. So, so that's kind of the latest ones. And then we're looking at more deals in that market. We're also looking at Cleveland, Ohio. That's another area that we're focusing on. So that's kind of what's hopefully next in the pipeline for us. Is it all with the same group or are you kind of finding like new partners to work with every single time? Yeah, that's a great question. And the last two deals have been with the same group. And that's probably the only group I'm going to work with going forward, just because I feel like keeping it a little bit closer. I don't know if that's the right word, but just know who you're dealing with and being comfortable with that team going forward. And, and I like that group. So I want to continue to work with them. And that's where I'm adding more and more value as well. Right? Some of these other deals have been with a couple other groups and they're doing okay, but it's still... I just feel like I have a bit of rapport with this last group that I've worked with. I want to continue with them. I noticed that all the different properties you had since you started syndicating are in different locations like Atlanta and, you know, like Pennsylvania and whatnot. And is it weird going to these different markets instead of just kind of doubling down on one area and getting familiar with that one spot? I guess there's two strategies, right? You can focus on one market and put all your eggs in one basket and really watch that basket very carefully. And I think... That works really good if you have somebody boots on the ground and you can get a really strong like strategic advantage by being there. So I, I do like that. And that's like, for example, the Pennsylvania stuff. The other ones were pretty much opportunistic deals and kind of growing markets that we felt like, well, it makes sense to go in there and buy one or two deals. But just put, because once you buy a 200 plus unit deal, you can get professional management. You can put somebody in there and work with that. So so it's been a little bit of a diversification there. I think we are going to probably double down and do focus more on a specific region going forward. Yeah, because, you know, in the beginning, like the hardest part is really just to build your team, right? Like find the right brokers to work with, find the right property management team to work with. And then ultimately, when it comes down to buying a deal, it's just a matter of money, right? But then since we're going like hopping to different markets, like I, I feel like you're, you're facing that challenge every single time. But I understand what you're saying, that diversification is a big reason you're doing that. Yeah, and I think, you know, just, you know, going forward, I do want to focus more on a few markets so I can leverage the team we already have put in place. Exactly. And what have been some of the unexpected challenges that you faced since starting your real estate investing career? I think with older properties, I've definitely learned that you have kind of a budget for your repairs and maintenance. Also, your CapEx, I guess, your, your upgrades. But then as you start digging into things, Unexpected things come up. Like we had this one, the 38 unit deal that we did. Turned out that the plumbing was just deteriorating in the floor, right? So we had to like literally replumb the units, which was not something we had quite budgeted for. So that was a challenge, right? So I think, you know, you can put numbers on a spreadsheet and you think that that's the way it's going to look. But in reality, it may change quite significantly along the way. So for those plumbing issues, was it like that it was like galvanized piping and just got old and now it's starting to leak? It was actually copper, but they were just, it was just in the ground. Like this was just slab on grade and they hadn't cased it properly or something. It was just literally the copper had uh, just deteriorated and started leaking everywhere. Wow. That's crazy. It is crazy. So now they have nice new pecs running in soffits that we put in instead. So Nice. And then like, I guess you 
probably wouldn't see that kind of issue come up during your due diligence period, right? It, it's only like after you close on it, then you start getting those tenant calls and you're like, oh, what is this? And boom, big issue. Yeah, that was would have been a difficult one to discover just because, you know, the plumbing was working when we bought it, but, you know, just slowly things started to crop up here and there. And I think the previous owner probably had patched it, but not in a good way, right? We kept having problems. They were like, well, if we want to keep this property, we should not just keep patching it because, you know, we put new cabinets and flooring in and then what if it all gets damaged through a leak? So we decided to bite the bullet and just do it. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, it'd be better off long-term anyway. That's right. And improve the value of the property. So that's how we chose to do that. And you guys are also investing in, you know, what is like right now, one of the most interesting economic environments, COVID, right? And there are a lot of these moratoriums against evictions or rent collections. And I was wondering if you talk about how it's like investing in this COVID environment. Yeah, I mean, you know, back in March and April, we were pretty worried, right? We thought, oh, man, nobody's going to pay rent and it's going to be a disaster. And we had just gotten a deal on the contract. And we're like, oh, this is not good. But we've actually had really strong rent collections. And I think most apartment owners that I've talked to and heard about have done well. Is that because of the government stimulus? That's part of the big question. And if that expires, what's going to happen, right? So what we did, you know, we on our syndication, we said, well, we're going to stop distributions. We're going to preserve our investors' equity because that's kind of goal number one. And we're just going to just kind of see how things progress here, right? Just scale down our expenses and, and so forth, you know. But then as things have not completely fallen apart, we have, you know, started rehabbing and, and things like that again. Still, the next few months is going to be interesting, right? And I think we're certainly not out of the woods. So as we buy new deals, we got to be very diligent about our stress testing and everything else going forward. So are you still looking at new opportunities? Yeah, we're looking at opportunities. There's not a lot of deals coming up right now. And I think, you know, if you're a seller and it's like, well, I've been collecting rent, why should I give you a discount, right? And then, so there's definitely a little bit of a, a price discovery challenge right now where the the sellers may think it's, you know, January and the buyer's like, well, we should get a discount. We can't quite line up there. But also the fact that the lending, I mean, interest rates are so low, that creates another level of demand for multifamily, right? So it's a challenging market to find the right price right now. Right? Yeah, I was surprised too, because I think before the whole shelter in place thing happened, people were thinking, oh, if some kind of a shelter in place were to exist and economy goes down, then people will stop paying rents and everyone who's in the syndication is going to be screwed. But turns out that it's actually doing pretty well. Like apartments as a whole are actually collecting the rents, but it's the like retail side that are getting hammered very, very hard. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I just hope that it continues this way. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned that you guys held distributions because, you know, you want to preserve capital during this time. I was wondering how that whole thing works. Like, does it mean that you owe your investors you know, 8% next year on top of whatever you owe? Or is it just kind of like, hey, this year we're not going to pay you guys and I don't know how, how this whole thing works? I mean, for a deal that has a preferred return, that accumulates, right? So if you don't can't make 8% this year and you can't make it next year either, you'll have to catch up on that the day you sell the property, right? And said, okay, here's your you know preferred return that wasn't paid. You catch up on that. And then we'll split everything after that, right? We have some deals that are just kind of straight splits, you know, 80-20 or, you know, uh, 75-25. 
Well, in those deals, there's not really a promise of a preferred return. So it's just pay what we can, right? And, and do that. So it really depends on the way the deal is set up. Yeah, when you saw the whole COVID thing happening, how was it like to make those conversations with your investors to tell them the bad news? You know, somebody I once worked with told me that bad news does not improve with AIDS. So, you know, it's not like don't hold it back because, you know, you want to just be upfront and said, hey, well, this is unexpected event that nobody could have foreseen, right? Here's what's going on. You know, we're we're doing the best we can to reduce expenses, but we also need to make sure we preserve the capital because the last thing you want to do is lose the property because then everybody's money is gone. And most, you know, I had, I had a couple of people that were asking some questions and I said, well, this is the best we can do right now. And, you know, I hope, and most people were, you know, they understood that that was the situation and I didn't have anybody that was super upset about it. And I think everybody is sophisticated enough to understand that it is a projection when we did the initial you know, issued the initial offering, projections may not always come true, right? I mean, we obviously want to be as accurate as we can, but I mean, this is just an unexpected thing that everybody got blindsided by. Exactly. And I think that's also probably a thing that made it hurt less is that, okay, it's COVID, everyone's getting impacted. And it's not just because something that your team is doing wrong, right? If, if everyone else was doing really well and only their investment was doing badly, then I'm sure you would kill off angry phone calls here. That would be a difficult discussion to have for sure, right? So, uh, so yeah, that helps. And I'm glad we're not in retail or hospitality or something. Yeah. So now that you've been in real estate for you know about four years now, what do you think you'll be doing differently if you were to start over today? That's always a good question, right? I don't regret the path I took just because it gave me, I learned, I learned along the way. I took some smaller risks with my own money. I think I would have probably have been more open to partnering with people earlier on, you know, and said, okay, yeah, I can do it by myself. But if I bring on one or two other people, maybe we can do something bigger, quicker and, and things like that. Right. So I know there are some people that go out and the first deal they do is a syndication, good on them, but I did not have that capability or, or mindset to do that. So, yeah, so not a lot of ton of different. I don't think so. I would probably have signed up a little bit early to get some coaching and education to make sure I really had a good solid foundation for it. Yeah. So when you give your coaching calls to new investors, what are you typically telling them to do to get started? It's all about what are your goals, right? What are you trying to achieve? Because some people may just want a little bit of side income. They love their jobs and they're just trying to people like they want to quit. They want to quit in a very short period of time. And that's a different model, right? And they have to be willing to put that effort in. And I see, I do see some people, they have a certain set of goals in mind, but they don't take the action required to line up with their desired outcome. And it's like, well, there's a disconnect between what you want to do, sorry, what you say you want to do and what you're actually doing. So what's going on here, right? And really, you know, but it's all around goals. What is your why? Why do you want to do this? It's not a get rich quick scheme. It's really is hard work and you just got to be willing to, to put the time in. What are some of the challenges that you were seeing new investors face, especially when it comes to these mental roadblocks? Just having the confidence to go out and maybe make broker calls because they're like, oh, you know, I don't have any credibilities with brokers or, you know, even start talking to potential investors and, and those things. Just that they think, oh, I don't know anything. So therefore, people are not going to take me seriously. And I always say, well, if you can establish your criteria, if you can talk passionately about what you're trying to achieve, people are going to see you very quickly as a thought leader and it's not going to be that difficult. I think the other challenge is people get analysis paralysis and they don't make take any actions. Like, well, I don't know if this is a good deal or not and I can't make an offer on it. 
And, you know, so that's helping them really get to the conclusion that, yeah, let's put an LOI in or no, let's move to the next one. That, that's helpful too. So, yeah, I think for, I guess, the multifamily, like commercial side, if you are trying to get into it, I honestly don't even think it's a good idea for you to be making those offers or talking to brokers directly because you probably don't know how to analyze the deal properly. And even if you did get a deal somehow in a contract, it's going to be very hard to raise the funds all by yourself. So it might be a good idea to just do what you did where you join a group and then you try to add value to that group and somehow get connected. And then once you have a couple of deals under your belt, now you can be the like the spearhead and uh, do the project from the, from the ground up. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I've found where my strengths are, you know, I'm not necessarily the best guy to go out there and work with the brokers, but give me the spreadsheet and give me the numbers. And I will really start to understand that and not have, I see a lot of people get very emotional. It's like, oh man, this is the best property ever. And I'm just looking at it as I said, well, no, not based on these numbers. This is not a deal you should do. I don't care if it's got gold plated ceilings on there. It's not going to make sense from an investment standpoint and just kind of get away from being emotional around. I think that's, that's a challenge some investors get themselves caught up into too. So when you look at the numbers, is there something in particular that you're looking for? I want to be able to pay my investors, you know, six, seven, eight percent cast on cast in the first few years. You know, I, I'm not going to say, oh, you won't pay you anything for four years. And then you're going to get a big pay, payday when we sell the property because there's too much risk in that. I want a deal that cash flow very quickly without having to do a crazy amount of work on it, right? So yeah, value add for sure, but not some crazy, you know, some pie in the sky type thing. And, you know, if we can get at least 50% of our capital, so our returns on that investment from cash flow, then it starts to make sense, you know, because right now I, I just, you know, hey, what is cap rate going to be in five, seven or 10 years? Well, that's just a guess, right? <laughs> so cash flow right now is, in my opinion, much better than an equity growth down the road. And do you think there's something that, new investors need to watch out for because it's, it's so easy to like put in random numbers in a spreadsheet, but to have experience that you can add some extra factors in there. Yeah. It's easy to put numbers in a spreadsheet. You're absolutely right. So I think a lot of people, they, they look at the seller's numbers like, Oh, I can do much better here. You know, I can reduce expenses. I can do all these things. Maybe if you're experienced and you know the market, maybe you can, but Maybe you can, and therefore, you know, you should be very careful about your projections around reducing expenses and raising rents and not just make crazy assumptions to make the numbers work, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So going forward, are you going to just continue doing commercial multifamily or are you going to try other real estate asset classes? Personally, I own a small mobile home park too, and that's actually gone really well. So I would love to find something, a mobile home park that I could do. That would be pretty awesome. But I know multifamily, I feel like it's kind of the bread and butter for what we do. And I'm going to just stick to that and not not trying to get too creative because I've invested passively in a couple of things that I thought, oh, it's going to be amazing. And it didn't turn out and really because I didn't understand what was going on. Right? So I don't want to make that mistake with other people's money. So. so you were a passive investor in other syndications and then you like they didn't manage the asset or the deal as well. No, these were my apartment syndication. Passive investments have gone fine. No, this was like some land, and this is like an agriculture deal in Central America that <laughs> hasn't been doing too well. And then I invested in a in some private debt in a expensive house in California that ended up getting foreclosed on and stuff. So just deals that I don't really understand. I should just stay away from. Gotcha. Makes sense. Awesome. 
Well, this has been a very interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Jens. Are there any last tips that you'd like to share to our listeners before we end our show today? Getting some education, getting, you know, having somebody to kind of help you when you first get started, that's really have been my biggest takeaway from everything I've learned along the way. Great. And how can people get in contact with you? So they can go to my website, it's open doors with an S capital.com. That's my website. My email is Jens at opendoorscapital.com. And if anybody wants to get on a free strategy call, either about investing or coaching, they can go to opendoorscapital.com slash call and schedule a free call with me there. So I'd love to talk to investors. Well, Jens, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Sean. It was a lot of fun. Cool. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a review to get updated when the latest episode comes out. A brief summary of this podcast can be found in the show notes at everythingrei.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second, and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks, and have a great day.